This is The Future Of, a live fortnightly conversation where host Santilla Chingayape talks with creative thinkers about the brave and bold ways we can make a better future. Presented by State Library Victoria. Welcome everyone to the fourth episode in the Future Of series brought to you by State Library Victoria. My name is Santilla Chingayape. I'm the host of this series. And before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that this conversation is coming to you from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I'd like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge any um, First Nations people that might be tuning in to this afternoon's, this afternoon's conversation. Um, and so this week we're sort of continuing on from the last conversation, which was exploring the future, the futures, the, the future of futures. Um, and joining me to continue that conversation is professional futurist Bridget Angela. Hey, Bridget, welcome back. Thanks very much. I'm very happy to be here again. Um, and if you are tuning into this conversation live, you can join the conversation using the hashtag SLVFuture. Um, and we are taking questions from the audience. So if you are viewing via the event page, you can actually pop your question in there and we'll be able to see it. And um, you can direct it uh, to Bridget. Um, and also just a reminder that you can catch up on all of the episodes in the Future Of series um, via podcast and via the State Library Victoria website. Um, so, Bridget, I have a question for you, which I should have asked you last time we were having this conversation, um, but we get an opportunity to have a chat again. So um, I thought I'd begin by asking you, how, how do you become a professional futurist? Possibly a combination of learning, formal education and experience. Uh, some people will claim the moniker of a futurist. Uh, others will go through the process of learning and exploration and experience. I have a degree in strategic foresight and it took me a little while to think through, you know, well, what does it mean to, to claim the title of futurist? Um, I consider myself a professional futurist in that I do have that academic qualification and uh, a, a the experience to go with it. So I've been working in the futures foresight field for just on 10, or depending on how you cast it, 10 to 15 years. And uh, there are numerous courses you can do. Right. So can you, you, I mean, last time you talked about the fact that futurists can't predict the future, but can they forecast the future? Yes. And there's a very subtle difference between the two. Um, forecasting tends to be exploring the, the things that might happen. Uh, so a forecast is, is usually scientific, free from any kind of bias, maybe based around data and therefore extrapolating from the, the facts that you have. Uh, and forecasting is also about things that might happen, that might emerge from where we are in, in space and time. Uh, whereas a, a prediction has a degree of implied certainty around it. You know, this is a statement about, you know, what is going to happen or a thing that might affect us. Uh, and so as a, as a futurist, our role is not to try and predict uh, and, and certainly not to say this is the way it will be, but to give people those uh, possible uh, alternatives, so those images of different futures and, and to help us understand that um, the distinction between prediction and certainty um, is, is is up to us as to whether we want to believe that uh, versus the forecast of these are the things that might happen and then for us to make choices as to our preferred future or the, the futures that we might want. And so how far ahead can you forecast? Ah, oh, that really, <laughs> that's such a good question. Um, and, it, and I'm going to say it depends. 
Uh, there are, as I said, I think last time, there are no future facts. There can't be. So it's very hard to go out in time. Um, with, with most of the work that I do, and there are uh, foresight practitioners who work in the longer time horizon, so 100, 150 years out and further than that, uh, but most of the time the work that I do is around 10 to 25, depending on the context, and then thinking ahead 50 years out from now. So sometimes it's easier to think in cycles of change and to think in cycles that are surrounding us, such as political cycles or generational cycles. So we think about rather than um, this being a 20 year time horizon to work in and more about, well, what does that look like for three generations from now? Mm. Um, I've got a few more questions to ask you, but I think I might sort of see what some of the questions that are coming in from the audience are. Um, and I'll begin with a question from John who asks, I'm a teacher. Many students have a sense of hopelessness about the future, especially in relation to climate change. Any thoughts about giving students hope? Oh, that's such a wonderful question because I think we touched last time around um, the, the things that we need to do within ourselves and building resilience and, and inner strength. Uh, hope is the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, and hope is different from optimism, which is why I think this is such a lovely question. We need to have hope. Hope is the thing that allows us to take the next step. It's the, as I said, gets me out of bed in the morning. It's the thing that allows us to think that there are alternatives, that there are possibilities. Whereas optimism, which is what a lot of people get stuck in, is the sense that it's all gonna be okay. Um, in reality, if we're pragmatic about it, it's not all going to be okay but we will get through. And so hope, and I'm, I'm not an expert in hope theory, there are people who, who work within the, the, the domain of hope theory. That's the stuff that we need to hold on to, that sense of we, we can hope and we have hope that we will be able to do better, that we will be able to change our circumstances. Uh, but clinging on to that relentless positive optimism sometimes does us a disservice because we're constantly disappointed when things don't turn out the way we expected them to be. And that's one of the other dangers with predictions when they don't come true. One of my favourite quotes this year that I read was from um, an abolitionist, a prison abolitionist, who said that hope is a discipline, as in, you know, you have to work at it. You can't sort of expect it to come from, you know, whether it's a meme that you see on the internet or something that you watch, like it can't be given to you in a moment. You have to actively work towards um, feeling hopeful and being hopeful. And so I wonder, I guess, from a practical sense, you know, if you are a teacher, you're in a classroom talking to your students um, and they're looking at the world around them and it just looks a bit bleak. Um, what can you do? I mean, what do you say? Um, what sort of examples are useful in those sorts of settings? Sometimes it's useful to acknowledge that we've had difficult times in, in history hundreds or thousands of years ago and we have managed to make our way to where we are now. Uh, with students, and I deal with undergraduate and postgraduate students in my teaching, uh, sometimes I see that look of almost despair um, or at least a forlorn smile about some of the things that we're looking at. Um, it's having them understand that they have agency and the capacity to bring about the change that they want. Now, whether that's in more formal ways, such as making choices about voting and, and influencing policy, or just the things that we do in our day-to-day -day lives, um, there, there is the capacity for change within us um, and it's reminding us that uh, from a, a teaching perspective that we are constantly learning and if we learn from our mistakes we can make changes. 
The other thing is to be very aware of what's going on around us now and the opportunities around us that are that are that are strong and good and help us appreciate the, the position that we're in. And I say that as someone in a position of, of, of privilege uh, and, and acknowledging that other people don't come from those same positions. Uh, so talking particularly with younger people, and I say you know, I'm in my 50s, uh, when you're talking with someone younger, it's having them understand that there are there are years ahead for them to, to explore and expand their horizons. Um, also having them understand, and this goes back to a little bit about hope, we need to be grounded in what we have and what is actually possible. And lots of those false promises and, and predictions about the, that, that really bright, amazing flying car future or uh, the futures in which they are um, incredibly strong and utopian. We need to aspire to those, but we need to understand that there's a bit of work to be done and that we have as much responsibility and need to participate in creating those futures rather than as, as just having governments or other organisations create them for us. We have an active role in our lives. Uh, whether that brings about hope immediately, because I completely agree with what you were just saying about it's a thing you do every day. Hope is not something that you can just tick a box on. You you can't get it from anywhere except from within yourself. And it's so letting things settle, um, letting things, being very present to the things that are around us um, and being grateful uh, for the things that are good and acknowledging that that's not always going to be good, but that's okay. Um, and that, that this is part of the human condition. Well, staying with education, there is another question that uh, someone asks, what is your expectation in the near future on education, teaching and learning? And is technology sufficient enough for our children and future leaders? That's another really good question. Uh, my expectation in terms of that very short term is that we're given, again, pandemic uh, and, and the, the global uh, situation that we have right now and potentially for the next six to 12 months, I don't see much shifting around the use of technology and, and the impact, good and bad, uh, on education and teaching and learning. And again, I teach, I've been through a year of teaching online and I know that it, it can be great, but I also know that it, it can be really hard and it doesn't suit everyone. Um, so technology might be enough to get us through, but it's whether technology is the answer. Um, technology in itself is, is a conduit. Um, simply providing things online does not necessarily mean that people are going to be willing to learn and grow and change as they learn. Um, the other thing is the reliance on technology. That's just a huge cost on the environment. Uh, every time we do something online, uh, it, it is, it's data consumption, it's power energy consumption, it's resources that are pulled out of the ground to create the devices that we use. And so my expectation is that we're going to see a lot more of what we're doing or similar to what we're doing. However, we are seeing shifts and we are starting to see the impact of the, the choices we've had to make this year in the way people learn and in the way that affects their, their education outcomes um, in the shorter term. And hopefully we will be able to not just see what that impact is, but to be able to adapt um, based on what the outcomes are. There will be people who have, as I said, not enjoyed it. And so what do we need to do to find better ways for them to learn? Are there different ways of learning? Hopefully we will see a shift in not just the, the technology connection between teaching and learning, but how we perceive the value of teaching and learning. Um, something that we've seen a lot um, is the, the, the rise in 
entrepreneurship. So people needing to do, whether you were an entrepreneur already uh, or whether it was applying that kind of intrapreneurship, entrepreneurial principles within your business or within the organisation you work with. People are starting to adapt different skills. So the creative thinking and the analytical thinking is coming through. So maybe that that influence in teaching and learning is learning how to, to draw on those resources ourselves, learning different skills, adjusting our skills as the situation changes around it. I don't know whether that really answers the question as it is, uh, but my, my, my short answer to is technology sufficient enough for, I think it was children and future leaders? Not now, no. Uh, we, we don't know what we don't know, to steal a phrase. Um, and this is a constant learning for everyone. One of the things that I picked up from our last conversation was when you talked about the idea that futures work is not just about technology, that it can be applied to pretty much every every sector and every, every way of thinking. And that really transformed my thinking because I think I'd initially, when I thought about futures work, it was very much in the tech space. I hadn't imagined that futures work, you could use that sort of thinking when thinking about politics and policy and all sorts of areas. And and, and that was a very um, eye-opening kind of um, thing when you touched on that last week. I thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, everyone has, has the capacity to think forward, whether it be the next two hours or the next two weeks or the next 22 years. We have that capacity. We just need to learn how to draw on it and, and use it. And all of those images of futures that are out there for us to explore, whether it's science fiction and, and movies or simple depictions and narratives and stories about those possibilities, even the stories that we tell ourselves about how we would like to be living in five years or 10 years, those are all really useful for us to have things to aspire to, to think about how do we get there. And that's that's that kind of the, the, the process of getting from where we are now out to that preferred future, knowing that my preferred future might not be everyone's, uh, but at least I can say, well, if that's where I want to get to, what are the steps I need to take? What are the things I need to do along the way? And I think to, to touch a little bit on the, the, the previous question around climate change, this is something that was talked about and it wasn't until it was really quite in front of us, it was in our faces, and and not just omnipresent, but but pretty urgent that we started to say, oh, maybe we do need to do something about this. And so, in our responses, even though they have been slower or less than might be ideal, we have started to see changes. We've started to see greater acceptance of the need for change, um, greater acceptance of the need for newer technologies. And this is again where. Um, the, the hope for change will hold us strong to the decisions that we make. So making choices about an energy provider, which I had to do recently, um, and going through and taking the time to see who owns this organisation, how do they treat their staff, what are their values, what are the things that are important in this organisation, and that becoming the point by or the series of points by which you make decisions to spend your money. Uh, there are other things um, that we can do when we think about where we choose to live, uh, where we choose to buy our goods, what are the things that we want to see. If, if we want to see um, the, the, the changes around particularly affecting um, temperature increase, then what are the things that we need to stop doing? What are the things that we can talk to our neighbours and our families about that might help bring about that change? But there are also limitations with that as well. I mean. Some people might not be able to afford to make those sorts of changes and make those sorts of choices. Um, and in that instance, what what does someone then do? I mean, if you if you if you can't afford 
um, to shop somewhere that's a little bit more ethical because, you know, the only supermarket in your area is what you have or you, you are from a low-income background. I mean, these sorts of factors um, do weigh in when people are making these sorts of decisions. And I wonder what do you then do in the absence of having the financial means to make those sorts of choices? Um, often nearly brings me to tears. Um, just because I have the capacity to make those sorts of decisions doesn't mean that everyone does. But what it does make me think more about is my ability to make those choices and maybe that in, it frees up something for other people to be able to make those choices. Um, the inequity around the world is one of the things that really troubles me. Not more than climate change, but as much as climate change, because that inequity has all is contributing. You know, they, they sort of sit here for me. They are equally problematic and and equally troublesome. Um, the 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 science tells us that the people who are going to be most affected by climate change in years to come will be those who are already disadvantaged. Um, so again, this is about that's us, but maybe the social conscience, knowing that when you make a decision, you might be able to make a decision that helps someone else. Um, and if you're not in a position where you do that, although I have to say that a lot of people I know who are not in a, a position of privilege actually make decisions based on the community around them and their family and those other the, those other considerations. Um, so it's what's the phrase? Check your privilege. Now, make sure that when you are doing things that you are thinking not just about your immediate need uh, if you are able to, but also you must prioritise yourself. Uh, one of the things that one of my colleagues um, and, and someone who taught me many years ago, uh, Dr Joe Voros, is that it's like the airline um, announcement, you know, fit your mask if the oxygen masks drop, fit your mask first, then help others. So if you need to buy food and get it on the table and pay bills, that's your priority because you can't help others and you can't do the right thing by anyone else unless you do the right thing by yourself first. And that's not an excuse for selfishness, but it is an excuse for you to be able to make decisions from a position of strength, inner strength and hope as much as um, that it can give to others. Um, another question from uh, JN, um, and they ask, what would the intermediate future look like until we reach the preferred future? And how many generations will it take to see a reduction in conservative thinking? Oh, <laughs> oh I wish I had an answer to the second part of that question. Um, that's going to be up to the, the... The second part is down to the generations who are coming through. So if we want to see a shift in that conservative thinking, if that's that that's what you want, then you need to make decisions that will influence that. Uh, and I think you're, with some of the shifts we're seeing around at the world around the world at the moment, um, we can see that there are tensions between those more traditional conservative ways of views and and the ways of doing versus those that might be labelled more pro more progressive or, or less conservative. Uh, the preferred future will obviously have a pathway to get there. And that the pathway is going to depend on your preferred future. So that midpoint or the steps along the way will depend on where you're headed to. Uh, so I don't, again, don't love the vague answers. I'm really sorry. But I don't have a specific, this is what it's going to look like. What I can tell you is that it's likely to be a bit messy and a bit uncomfortable. And we possibly need to be getting more comfortable with being uncomfortable. We have had a sense of thing of being told this is what it's going to be like and this is how you will get there and these are the things that will, will happen along the way. And that's actually 
been proven wrong many, many, many times. So instead of us stacking our, our cards on, on one, we should be thinking, well, if that's what I want, what are the steps? And accepting that two years out from now, things will have changed a little bit. And two years out from that, things will have changed a little bit again. But if we could go out to a future five years from now and look back on where we are, then we would see that there would be a more significant change. Um, it's it's like the, I hate the analogy of the diet, but it's like that. You you, you either want to gain weight or lose weight, and it, it happens in, in short steps. Uh, and those changes towards futures happens in the same way. It's little steps along the way. So um, it's like the savings account. You know you want to save $5,000 and therefore you have to do the steps along the way to get to the 5,000 and somewhere in the middle, you'll get to two and a half thousand over the period of time. Um, the challenge is to be able to look at what the steps are to get you to the preferred future. And also to recognize that as as you go through that, things will, will bump up against you and force you to maybe adjust or, or shift what you're doing in order to continue uh, what you want. However, we, we're people. We, our, our values uh, may not change, but our priorities might. The things that we want today uh, might not still be a priority for us in, in six months or 12 months time. And so we need to balance all of these things and hold them kind of equally. Uh, and, and at the same time, which is really hard. And I suppose that's one thing I should reassure you of. <laughs> this stuff isn't easy. Uh, there is no, uh, well, there is no crystal ball um, that we can do say, this is, this is gonna be the, the, the easy way to do this. And a lot of that rhetoric that we have around us saying, oh, this is the easy way to do this, or it's five steps to whatever. It's often not that simple. Life is complex and complicated. Uh, and at the moment, it's still a bit chaotic for many. And therefore, it's learning to grapple with those kind of nuances in between. Uh, and I, I it's, it's as hard for us as foresight practitioners, as, and I use that as a very loose us as a, as a collective, um, when people are saying, well, is it hard? Yes, it is really hard. And it's actually harder at the moment because most of the work that we do is being disrupted on almost a daily basis as something else changes. And then you throw in all of the random stuff, the unexpected things like natural disasters, uh, and it shifts a whole lot of other um, narratives around what might happen six or 12 months. So how now. do people stay, I, I guess, resilient? I mean, so if you decide that this is the sort of preferred future that you'd like and you do everything within your power um, to work towards that preferred future, and so it's clearly, as you said, it's a slow thing that you work towards. It's not a you don't arrive there overnight. Um, and I'm curious, like, how do, how do you, taking in those considerations that life happens along the way and priorities shift, um, how do you how do you stay on course? Like, how do you ensure that um, you don't lose sight of what you're working towards when life does get a little bit challenging? Sometimes it's staying the course uh, and sometimes it's maybe thinking about whether the course is is still the right one. Um, and so learning to adjust as things emerge, uh, whether that be about decisions with career, for example, uh, or wanting to move and, and, and choose a, you know, make a different lifestyle choice and choose to live in a different place in a different way. Um, it's understanding what's important to you and being able to prioritise that potentially without, well, hopefully without the cost to others around you. Uh, it is also not just about focus, but it is about commitment and understanding what you can do within yourself. Now, whether that be 
what some people do and I'm, I'm one of them. Um, I meditate every day. It allows me to focus and, and retain clarity and also to get through some of the clutter that surrounds us. Um, some people um, have other practices. Um, other People have to make different choices around how they can say what's right and what is good. Uh, but there's never one measure for this either. And so what I might have thought was good a couple of years ago will have changed uh, and certainly will change over time. I don't know whether that really answers your question, but a lot of it is about us and the, the work that we do within ourselves. Maybe it's sometimes changing expectations, um, allowing ourselves to shift as things shift around us as well. Uh, knowing that you know, we might have our heart set on that, but that's no longer possible. So what's what's a better alternative for us right now? Or what's a better alternative five years out? Uh, the other consideration is to look at the decisions you're making and actually start to play out. Uh, I'm not suggesting a full-blown scenario thinking exercise, but certainly thinking through, well, if I do this, then what happens here? What happens over here? What are the pathways that emerge from all of those those different possibilities? Uh, if I make a choice to buy this, or if I make a choice to go and live here, what does that mean for me? What are the other things that I have to take into consideration? So I suppose a lot of this is maybe about thinking more broadly as well as more deeply about the things that we're doing and not getting rushed um, or forced to rush into decisions simply for the sake of making it right there and then. Um, another question um, is how can we create a future where human life and caring for people and animals is more valued than looking after, than looking after money? That's another really good question and I love the fact that these are all how. Uh, how is the missing part a lot of the time? Um, the, my, my initial response to that is individual action, uh, discussion, knowledge, sharing information, sharing facts, learning about what these things are and helping others learn. Also respecting that everyone has a perspective, they're all equally valid and not everyone's going to want the same thing. So uh, that might be important to the person who asked that question, but it might not be important to the person who's living in the same house or down the road. Um, and certainly it's not going to be the same perspective for everyone around the world. So we need to be able to manage that. Uh, but certainly it's it's definitely about those values and what is important being shared uh, in a way that people start to see what the intrinsic value of things like other life forms is over money. Uh, it's also understanding, and this is what you were saying before about not having money for, for some having money is is what matters because that's part of identity or it's part of how they've structured everything that they have around them and so having access to money is important because it allows them to live what they what is their fulfilling life it's not necessarily going to be right for me it's not necessarily going to be right for you but that is what works for them so it's it's the education um, and learning and having this shared conversation which i think is what a lot of foresight work is about opening up a space for people to talk about the things that they have in common um, the, the the perspectives that they share the values that are important but also that dissent the the points that we don't have in common the things that we have to argue about the things that we need to be able to respect about different perspectives because uh, essentially what that question is about is a bigger maybe global value shift um, and who's to say it's the right one 
it might be perceived as being the right one uh, but that's not to say that will be the case for everyone and a big global shift like that is going to take time now we are seeing it filter through there's definitely what would be considered signals of change coming through around that value shift uh, but it's not going to happen immediately um and we've got one more question um climate change seems to be a big um topic that people are curious about and this one asks it's from john and he asks how do you see the time frame for replacing fossil fuels well my short answer to that is it's going to be down to policy so it will be linked to um, influencing policy change um i in the short term i don't see much happening and I, and I say that because i'm not doing a prediction but i can't envisage radical change around that um, until there are significant shifts even down to us as individuals and in our lifestyles, thinking about just flicking the switch to turn on a light or when we get another 40 degree day, five days in a row, not turning the air conditioner on to 21 degrees immediately. Um, so that, that short term shift is really going to be down to us again, making our decisions about what we consume and what we don't consume and influencing the people around us. And I don't just mean our neighbors and friends, I'm talking about the people who are in positions where decisions can be made and, and helping them understand that we actually, as citizens, want them to make better choices. There are big systemic barriers to that kind of change and we need to try and break down those parts of the system or at least just push them a little bit so that um, we can start to see sh the shift. Um, it, this is down to politics and, and government and what is also traditional um, a trade base. Um, you know, it's an industry for Australia. And that, again, really deep-seated issues and connections that are not going to be broken overnight and would actually then have people in those vulnerable positions where they're, they're feeling threatened about not having a job and not being able to feed their family and not being able to do the things. So you end up with that kind of cycle that we were talking about a few minutes ago. Um, and there's a big, there's fear around that. But a lot of people are fearful of change. And in actual fact, things change every day. And we just need to be more building that ability to be resilient and then learning to be resilient on a regular basis. And if there's anything we've learned out of 2020, it's certainly being resilient. <laughs> yeah, we bounce uh, from one thing to the other. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, on that note, Bridget, we really have come to the end of um, our conversation. Um, it's always just a pleasure speaking to you. Um, very insightful. And um, thank you to everyone that joined us for this conversation. Um, if uh, We're going to take a break, actually, um, for a couple of weeks, and we'll be back in the new year. You can catch up on all of the episodes via podcast or on the State Library Victoria website. Um, keep uh, your eyes peeled for the e-newsletter from the State Library Victoria um, to find out more about the next conversation as part of the Future Of series. But in the meantime, um, have a great summer and we will see you in February. The Future Of is a fortnightly conversation produced by State Library Victoria. To help make a brighter future for the series, please subscribe, rate, leave a review or share it with your friends. You've been listening to The Future Of. To find out more, visit slv.vic.gov.au and search for The Future Of.